We're competent, confident, well, we're pretty competent, but we're confident that this bank is structurally sound. So thank you for your expressing that confidence also. <laughs> we are, uh, we're teasing, actually, we just did a little uh, engineering look at the building and we're, we're more than confident. Some people are heading down, all right. I have a friend that once told me, we were having a conversation, I said, so, I, I said such and such, and so and so got upset. And he said, you know, you, you don't know how important some people think what you say is. They take your words very seriously, and you don't, you don't see it. You have a sharp sword, you've got to be careful with that. And uh, so, so I, I'm teasing about the soundness of the building. But what we're certain of is the soundness of God's word. If you'll turn, please, to Colossians chapter 2 this morning, in the word of God, Colossians 2. Remember, that's in Paul's letter, so at the end of the Bible. It's in the shuns. If you flip to Paul's epistles after Romans, you'll get into the shuns, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's the order, G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And what we're studying, as you can see on the screen behind me, is the reason for our joy. We just talked to the children about the difference between what God gives you in joy and what the world offers is a shoddy substitute and fun. And it really is like the difference between sugar and a good, healthy meal. You know, sugar in moderation, that's okay. And I don't mean that the world's devices and Satan's attacks on us are okay, but I just mean it's okay to, to have diversion and to, to, to play. It's just not life. Have you ever had enough ice cream? Some of you are like, Pastor, you've had enough ice cream. <laughs> have you ever, but seriously, have you ever like um, eaten ice cream until you don't really feel like having ice cream anymore? To me, it's not, that's not a serving, right? The serving is like, well, that was nice. And then in the millennium, we won't have these constraints or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but no, I, have you ever just said, okay, let's just eat ice cream until I don't feel like it anymore? Um, it's an interesting moment when you arrive at that point. You're like, Pastor Dave, you don't have to confess all your sins to the congregation. <laughs> but when you have more than you should, and you start to feel like this doesn't feel it, feel, it feels bad enough that it tastes good, but it feels bad more than it tastes good. And you get to that point, you're like, ah. My prayer is that if, if you're struggling with the world's diversions, that you could get to that point where you say, uh, this isn't satisfying me. Long before you've wasted too much of your life. Life is God's design. Life is something God made. There is a world system attacking us. We read, for example, in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6, the flaming arrows of the evil one. There is a there's a being, the enemy of God, who desires to destroy your soul and mine. And one way he does it is little bit by little bit, step by step, wasted time diversion by wasted time diversion, where we just become Pavlovian dogs looking for that treat. But if we'll be thinking people as God designed us, we'll find in God's word a reason to rejoice Always, again, I say rejoice. What prompted this study of what God did for you when you first trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior was that question, where is the joy? Why do we feel unfulfilled, incomplete, dissatisfied, seeking something, something to get my, just some, this my pastor called it a frantic search for happiness. Why is this the world we live in? Why is this the church we live in at times? Where I'm just looking for the next diversion, the next thing to, to, to satisfy that feeling of inadequacy, incompleteness. And it's because that we know we're saved, but we don't think about it. 
I know I believe in Jesus as my Savior, and I know that in faith alone in Christ, I have eternal life that he alone gives. And I know that only through Jesus, what he did for me on the cross, I can have his life and be with him forever. And I know that that saves me from the penalty of my sins and and the sins of Adam that are imputed to us. That the sin of Adam that's appeared to us, that has caused us to be sinners. I mean, I know all this theology about that I'm saved. And the same reason that the kids that flake, all of them, it's like a rule, an unwritten law in our culture that if you grow up in church, you cannot go to church as a 20-year-old. We're trying to, we're trying to break that a little bit here, 20-somethings. Doing good. 20-somethings, all right. But, but the rule is, you grew up in church. You're not in church. You're not doing that anymore. You've moved on. You're trying to find yourself. You're doing your own thing. Well, it's the same issue. They know they're saved. They know. And so, what, what, you know, I'm going to do something else. And the, what's, what's horrific is this doctrine, the biblical doctrine of eternal security, becomes a basis for disregarding the God who has secured you. Why? How did that happen? How did that work? Well, I had a kid recently tell me in an interesting theological discussion, well, we don't have to do what Jesus said. When I asked, I was like, do we have to obey his command to love one another? Well, I mean, we don't have to. And I said, well, what do you mean have to? Do you mean he doesn't force you to? Or do you mean we're not obligated to? And the person said, well, I don't think we're obligated to. And I said, why would you say that? Well, we're, not, we're saved. It's not like we're going to hell if we don't love one another which is true. And so this is the problem of uh, theology. I understand a little bit, and we're all sophomores in a sense. We all know a little, and we're all dangerous, that little bit that we know. And we don't have that hunger that Peter commands for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. We don't go back and say, what else can I know of you, O God? Let me know you more. We don't sense that personal relationship. We find ourselves content to know a little bit of theology. And we understand that we're saved from the penalty of our sin and the wrath of God at the lake of fire by only trusting in Christ. With childlike faith, we understand that. And then we take that as a basis to say, well, since I'm not going to hell, whatever. And we've got this idiotic, communistic, socialistic idea of heaven that it's, first of all, eternal life is heaven. Actually, eternal life is now. You're supposed to live it now. And that heaven is this egalitarian thing where I'm issued my communist, you know, cloud and set of wings and harp, and everybody has the same thing, and then we're all sitting on clouds, bored to tears. I don't even play the harp. Some of you do. You love very beautifully. One of you does. But uh, we have this idea of, of heaven as, a, you know, whatever. And, and the God that we've trusted, who saved us from our sins... We haven't trusted everything else that he said. We haven't paid attention to it because we've got this really straw man idea of the way it works. Now, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ with childlike faith as your Savior, you have eternal life. You have the life. But so much of the New Testament encouragement is to live it, to walk worthy of your calling. To be imitators of God as beloved children and so love, walk in love, just as Christ loved us. And so my challenge to you is let's look at what happened. Let's look at the many things God did for us when we first trusted in Christ with that childlike faith. I have a little kid. I always do. I always have for 14 years. We've always had a little kid. The little kid turns two, got another little kid. Here it comes. And then we, we blew everybody's mind and waited until one turned three, and then we had another little kid. All right. One of my favorite things in the world, one of my favorite experiences as a father with these little boys, that's all we're allowed. Those of you who don't know is we've got six boys, and I joke around, that's all we're allowed. We don't know what to do with a girl. We don't know what that is. Look forward to daughters-in-law someday, by and by. All right. But when that little boy first responds to this, what is this? What am I doing? 
I'm reaching out my hand. When that little kid responds for the first time and he's, he's walking and he, by his volition, responds to my invitation and grabs my hand, that is one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had. I've had that six times with these little boys. I didn't think this would be something I would have enjoyed. I didn't say, well, someday I'm going to have kids and they're going to grab my hand. I'm going to be a dad and that's going to be magical. I never thought of that. It's just an observation I have in my life when that little boy, and, and when they're little and they still do, I love it. Little boy, you know, a little kid holding your hand, what are you at that point doing? You are walking at uh, 0.12 speed of your normal speed. You are basically stopping this child from getting hurt or hit. And they're the pace setter. And it's, I think, a good picture of how your Father in Heaven deals with you. Abba wants to hold your hand, if you will. He wants you, as his little child, to be reaching up and following him. He wants you to have that personal relationship with him that is only possible by his spirit working his word in you. He wants you to hear what he has to say about himself and about you and about the relationship between the two. And he wants you to talk to him. And he wants that relationship that is possible only through communication where what we call prayer is you actually responding to what God has already supernaturally said to you. And we read of Abba's desires for you every time we read something about what God has already done for us in our so great salvation and answers the question, how can I rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. How can I obey a command to rejoice? Well, it's a choice. But it's a choice beyond just we'll feel joy, just nothing. It's beyond just feel joy. It's the in the Lord part. Think about who he is and what he's done. And that word think is work that Americans just aren't willing to do so often, right? We don't want to think. We don't want to reflect. We don't want to meditate on the word day and night. But that's what this is. This is a meditation. So if you, in Colossians 2, last time we were together on this, we studied uh, 2 Corinthians 5. And I answered the question, um, well, I forget what question we answered. Today's question is, why did God, oh, that was what we answered. Why did God create me new in Christ? Why did he make me a new person in Christ was last time. And this time, the question I want to ask and answer is, why should in the new birth, the new creation, having a new life in Christ, if I'm a son of God, why should I live differently from the world? Why should the thing that drives the kids not drive our kids? Why should love of self-delusion and diversion not be the motivating factor in our lives? Ten years ago, it started to bother me if I would talk to young people. I talked to middle school and high school kids. What do you want to do with your life? Ten years ago, I want to be a software, I'm sorry, I want to be a video game designer. I want to be, why did they say that? Why did they want to be a video game designer? They were not coders. They were not computer geeks and they were not artists. What were they? They were playing video games. And that was the only thing that their imagination could come up with that would be a desirable thing for them to do. This is ten years ago. I mean, we're in Ready Player One now. We're, you know, that's, uh, that ship has sailed. It's, it's overwhelming. And this isn't me preaching legalistically against video games. It's saying there is a richness in this life that fun is fine, but we've all known fun. It's a version. It's not life. And if you treat something that isn't life like it is life, then you're not living. You're in a functional Romans 8 chapter, Romans chapter 8, death. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, answering my question, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on behalf of you and for those who are in Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face. That's a pretty big setup. What's Paul's burden? What's he upset about? What's, his, what's on his heart? that you believers, that their hearts may be encouraged because they've been knit together in love. Attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding and a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. 
let me unpack a little bit of what strung together in all those Greek prepositional phrases and say, an occupation with the person of Jesus Christ is a cause for great encouragement and even joy. And if our hearts are knit together in love as believers, it's because we are occupied with our Savior and about his work in our lives. I'd like to do a quick summary with you on the expectations of Jesus Christ for your life. If you have Christ as your Savior, you who are believers, here's what Jesus wants for you. It's a heavy lift, and you need God the Holy Spirit in you to do it. The fruit of the Spirit is love. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you, John 13, 34. That just as I've loved you, that you would love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. So a new commandment. The lawgiver is giving a new law. Galatians chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That is to love one another. And that love is not affirm. That love is not do what I said. That love is not give me what I want. That love is say, what does God want for you? And in loving God in obedience to this command, I seek God's interests on your account, the greatest and highest and best for you. Are you with me so far on love? Love is not, it, love is not telling the child that wants to play in the pretty yellow lines out there, oh, go ahead, there are pretty yellow lines. But I really want to. Oh, yeah, honey, you really want to. Go play in the street. It's wonderful because you feel that way. That's your attitude. That's not love. Biblical Christian love is what does God say is best for the person, and how can I be part of that? And disregarding myself, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about them. Let you go. Let God have hold of you, and you go after them. That's the idea. All right. You with me so far on the expectations Christ has for you as a believer? According to John 13, 34 and Galatians 6, 2. So far, are you with me? Because the next step is the Great Commission. When Jesus gave his final instructions, as Matthew records it, for the body of Christ going forward, he told the 11 remaining disciples that in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were commanded to make disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. Do you see how? Jesus' new commandment goes together with the Great Commission. You see how we're doing what Jesus said right even now? I'm modeling for you the way this works. Jesus said, love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 21, 23. Jesus gave a new commandment that you love one another. It's all through John's writings that if we love God, we better love one another. Loving him means we're about what he wants because we love him in response. And what does he want? He wants us to love one another. And so put this together. Jesus, my Savior, that I've trusted him as my Savior, has called me to a life of spirit-empowered love, which is a selfless giving on behalf of God's interest, what the other person that God says they need. And the thing that the unbeliever needs is addressed in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. They need to trust in Christ as Savior, be baptized by the Spirit, and then Christian baptism, profess their faith in Christ by this ritual that demonstrates their faith. That is loving the non-believer. Now listen carefully, you non-believers, let me testify, please, at least know this. You who, I don't know about this Jesus thing. I'm not convinced you're up there preaching. I don't know where anybody is. I don't know anyone is on their spiritual life. You visitors, I'm not assuming anything. So listen to me. If you're not a believer in Christ, hear what I'm saying. I didn't say that the Christian response to the unbeliever in loving them with the gospel so that they'll come to know Christ. I didn't say that we walk around and start beating people with a wiffle bob out of the gospel or the Louisville slugger of the gospel. I didn't say that every conversation now is about we got to believe in Jesus. It's not that, that we're trying to force something. It's that we have the message and we want you to understand it because we love you. We have the message, but God is the one who prepares the heart. God is the one who gave us the message. God is the one who empowers that message. So in our desire for you to have eternal life, to avoid the lake of fire, to glorify God willingly instead of as an example of his just wrath on sin and rebellion, that is just our love for you. You see what I'm saying? But it's not, it's not our power. It's not our energy. It's not our effort. It's our responsibility and God's grace through us. Understand believers. 
But the Great Commission begins with make disciples by baptizing them because you've told them of Christ and they've trusted in him. And then you show them how to make a public proclamation. I believe in Christ as my Savior. He died for my sins and rose from the dead. Okay, I baptize you into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This person who's already a believer in Christ, who already has the Holy Spirit, is now as a disciple proclaiming his faith, proclaiming her faith in Christ. That's the first step in discipleship, and I want you to understand it is loving that person. It is the most loving thing you can do to me to say, you are headed to the lake of fire, and I would like you to be saved from that. I'd like you to have eternal life. I'd like you to have what the Lord Jesus Christ alone offers. I want you to have a relationship with your creator who made you for himself. I'd like you to know the one who's calling you in these very words. Believe in Jesus Christ as your savior and you'll be saved. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings, says Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. For these have been written, says John at the end of his gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the anointed one that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you don't know that, we want you to know that. If you do know that, something happened when you first trusted in him. And so I'm walking the, 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 the walk between Jesus' command to love one another and the Great Commission. The way you love the unbeliever is by telling them of Christ, I mean, the ultimate way. I didn't say you don't provide for the poor or give food where someone's hungry or help them with their electric bill or all the things that we do, that we do to help people around us in need. I'm talking about the reason you do it. If you feed me a sandwich and deprive me of eternal life, you have just prolonged the inevitable. So yeah, feed me a sandwich while you're telling me about the bread of life. You see what I mean? Loving the unbeliever is most exquisitely, most importantly expressed in the gospel to the unbeliever. Loving the believer is like it, is like that. It is not telling them again and again, believe in Christ. Well, I did believe in Christ. Good. Come back next Sunday. Believe in Christ. Well, I did believe in Christ. Good. Come back next Sunday. And 40 years later, you have a bunch of babies that have believed in Christ all the time. Great. Now what? Let's grow. Let's be about the work that God has provided for us, which requires some maturity, some time in the Word, some understanding of the things of God. So what do you do with the believer? Teach them to keep all that I've commanded you, Jesus says. You teach them what love looks like. You teach them how it works. When we're walking together and you see that that's not love, you find a way to say it where they'll understand and and say, oh, okay. And you're not there to correct people, but you're there to help. That wasn't very loving. Or, so how about that new commandment (laughs) that Jesus gave us? He says to teach them all that I commanded you. I contend that if you will show me what pleases God, that you'll equip me to be pleasing to God, to make my life count in God's opinion for eternity instead of just diverting my life with fun and pleasure and self-living. If you'll actually show me what life is for and help me have a relationship with God, do you know what will happen to me? I will ultimately feel really loved. And whether I feel it or not, I will have been loved because I'll have something that I desperately needed. And that would have taken time on your part. You would have had to concern yourself about me. You would have had to pray for me. You would have had to ask God for wisdom and insight. How can I say something to help this poor man that has not much idea about the things of God and desperately needs to know you? How can, what can I do to advance the conversation? How can I help? How can I, where, where can I point the direction? What, what can you use me? How can you use me in their life is the question. And that's a very loving, self-sacrificial thing that you could do for me or I could do for you as we make disciples. I once had a friend say, our church is it's, constantly beating us up about the evangelism. Go witness, go witness, go witness. The fundamentalism is, is just killing me. And he said, but I think the Bible said we're supposed to love one another. And he opposed in his heart the idea of sharing Christ with loving people, that they were somehow not exactly one is the motivation and the other is the way you do it. It's the, it's the expression of love. So understand that. Let's get that piece of little bit of theology under our belt, that as believers, the call in our lives is to grow up into a mature love and then to act on it in making disciples. I just summarized the New Testament. All the spiritual life stuff, once you understand the the fundamentals of the faith, is about your walk with God in love 
obeying him and therefore concerning yourself for what he's concerned about. It's a high calling. It's an awesome calling. And it's a privilege. And you can say, well, no, it's not very fun. I have never had more fun than doing personal and corporate evangelism with you, beloved Christians. I've never had more fun. I've had a lot of fun doing many things. I have skied once. No, I, I skied a couple times, and it was not pretty. And I would, you know, back, in, back then, I was confident that I could heal. And so I would just do things that I should not have done, like go down slopes that should not have been gone down by me. And um, that was fun until it wasn't, but it was still fun. I remember those days fondly. But there's been, and I've done a lot of cool things. I've shot AK-47s in Iraq. That's fun. There's a lot of not fun involved with getting to that point, but that was a fun moment. Shooting AK-47s in Iraq. It was a real deal. Soviet AK-47s. But there's, I've never had fun like I've had fun with you telling people about Jesus Christ. I don't mean from this pulpit. I mean out and, out and about. It's awesome. It's so, so invigorating. But I'm not going for fun. I'm shooting for joy. I want joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the uh, outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. So Paul goes right to the Colossians, back to our Bible, and says that you might be encouraged, that your hearts would be encouraged because knit together in love. Hopefully, my little excursus on love has rounded out some of what that would imply from all the teaching he'd given these people and from all the teaching we have in the New Testament. Love isn't just we have affection and there's hearts floating around in the air. Love is duty. And it's marvelous. And it's God's spirit working through you. And it is not anything you say, it is what God says it is. But your hearts knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding in a true knowledge of the mystery, God's mystery, Christ. So as our hearts are knit together in love on this mission God has given us, we all have that same trajectory. We're all focused on the same thing, God's mystery, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And Paul is now going to elaborate on that mystery. There's no greater gift I could give you than a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul does in Colossians 2. In whom, in Christ, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So if you find a, a, a voice that says, yes, okay, I understand you're Jesus, and they start putting him in a cynical, humanistic box of, I understand, he's constrained, he's limited, he's over here, we've got the real stuff, we've got the big ideas, we've got the things that you really need to learn. I know you've got your Jesus, but you have you considered my Aristotle? Which is where he's going to go. Paul shuts all that down in summary by saying in Jesus, in the mystery of God, which is Christ, are reposed all the treasures, the wealth, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, monetary wealth is a great thing. It does many wonderful things, and it has its purpose. But it is, at the end, all kindling. Everything's going to burn up in 2 Peter 3. The book of Ecclesiastes is written with the whole point that your life is a vapor and if you don't figure out how to make it count, it won't. By the way, in Ecclesiastes, go beyond the sun. Don't live under the sun, but go beyond the sun to the one who made it. Connect your life to the eternal one and now you have eternal significance. That's the point. So Paul says, I'm shutting down any chance someone would come behind me and say, you've got your talk about Jesus. But as we saw with uh, John teaching through, through Jude, a lot of the people that will come behind will say, you've got this thing about Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua, fine, but uh, you really need to get with the law of Moses. And all the men, let's, if you really want to know the God of creation, let's line up for our surgery you Gentile men. And that's what's going on in Paul's day with the Judaizers. 
And some, we read in the book of Galatians, would say, you need to trust in Christ and be circumcised, and then you're part of the body. And no, that's the reason for the writing of the book of Galatians. You can't mix this ritualistic legalism that they have turn circumcision into. You can't mix your legalistic misunderstandings with the walk by the Spirit that will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, again in Galatians chapter 5. But in Jesus are all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so you'll never fully exhaust who he is. But listen, here's where the joy kicks in. You have him. You have him. Pull the treasure chest out and think about what God has already given you. You have Jesus. So why should I live differently from the world? In part, because I'm not stuck wondering about where it's all going or what it's all about. I already know it's about Jesus. I have the one who is to be the focus, the desire of my heart and the focus of my attention. I say this, Paul says, so that no one will delude you with pervasive argument, persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ never outgrow the responsibility and need for faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What did he say? The stability of your faith in Christ. What you and I do with God, I know this is a pretty complicated message for some of you, perhaps. I just summarized the entire Christian expectation of love and the Great Commission and the whole, Christ, whole New Testament. It's complicated. Let's simplify. What do you do with God? You trust him. What do I do in this situation? We'll start with trust him. Step one, whatever it is, trust him. Bring your faith to God in the circumstance, whatever the circumstance is. And that practice will give you stability as you continue to bring your attention to him. Therefore, verse 6, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Oh, I gave up all the, all the drinking. That's how I received Christ. No, it's not. Nobody ever received Christ by stopping anything. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? I told him that I was going to give him my life. That's not what the Bible says. I prayed a prayer and said, I give you my life. That sounds like you're trusting in the commitment of your, of, your, of your passion to give something to him when he's trying to give something to you. How did you receive Christ? By faith, you trusted in him. Understand, Jesus wants your life. And if you're trusting in him, in, in effect, are giving him all, the, all of yourself because otherwise you don't have eternal life. But what I'm saying is, it's, it's, you don't have to get fancy here. We're trusting him. It's faith. It's that little child saying, why is the sky blue? And dad says, because God loves the infantry. And then the kid believes it because dad said it. Now, dad needs to be careful about that. Because the sky is blue, dad should tell a kid, because of the angle at which the sun hits the earth, and how the sun reflects back, those sun rays reflect on the dust particles in the atmosphere, and it reflects back blue. And that's as good as I can do on my cursory physics understanding of, of color and, and light and, and all that. But the little kid doesn't know anything about light, and the little kid doesn't know anything about the, the, the way light reflects and breaks into different, different frequencies in the spectrum of light. He doesn't know, but... He, Dad said it's the dust particles and the way the sun interacts with them. And so the little kid believes that because he believes dad. And you know what happens? He now knows the truth about why the sky is blue. Because that's the truth. That's why it is. And he doesn't fully grasp all the exhaustive possibilities about the physics of light. And he needs to get into that, sure. But he knows enough but that's the explanation. It's, because, it's blue because of the sun and the, and the dust particles and how they interact. And that little childlike faith, the child now has knowledge because he believed what he was told 
And now he knows this is, this is how we are. This is how we're made. And what we're doing with the information of the gospel is we're trusting in the one who gave it to us and what he did for us. And what, that, what happens is we have e- eternal life by God's grace when we trust in him. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Remember my imagery? What's that little baby need to do? He needs to reach those hands of faith, reach that hand of faith up and grab my hand and just walk with me. You need to trust him. It's faith. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So let's, let's see how this works. How do I walk? How shall I live? I was given the gospel. The Spirit of God made it real to me. And I don't know. I didn't feel all that. It just happened. Like, I understand and I trust in Christ. And I reach up that childlike faith and trust in him. And that's how I started. And I had information that I believed about a person that was mediated personally. And those things are all part of the package. And then... I start walking. I need to walk that same way. It's information about a person mediated personally, and I'm trusting in him as I trust it. And it's that truth that I'm imbibing in, I'm being saturated by, that enables me to walk with him as I'm trusting him. Try to have faith with no object. Oh, I believe. I'm a person of faith. What do you believe in? At Christmas time, the little sweaters come out. I believe. Well, usually that's Santa Claus. Right, I believe in Santa Claus, what those things used to mean, I guess. See, faith has an object, and we keep feeding that faith. And as you've learned him, you heard the gospel, you heard of Christ's love for you and his death for you on the cross, and you trusted in him. And so now walk with him. You've got to feed the machine. You have, to, you have to feast on the things of God to trust him. And you mix what he said with faith. As we're doing now, I'm believing every word that Paul has given us here. Having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. There's a, there's a temperature measure. How do I know I'm sick? How do I know I'm sick? I got a fever. How do I know I have a fever? Well, we have a baseline expectation, and then the temperature says I'm above the expectation. How do I know that there's something going on here? Overflowing with gratitude. How's that overflow going? If there's not an overflow of gratitude in my life, and I would extend this to you based on what he said, I know that I'm not saturated with the word. I know that I'm not in the word sufficiently to trust him. And I'm not trusting him in that moment so that I'm thinking about why I should be overflowing with gratitude, what he's done for me, who he is. The God who made you, made you for himself. Think about that for a minute. I was talking to one of you the other day, and I said, have you ever seen those videos, those old clips of the, the concerts with Elvis? Very captivating thing. What was the comeback in the black, Elvis in the black suit? It was 57? 68. 68? He was way too thin for 68. Anyway, so. No, no, no. I know. I, I know. We are communicating, Yes. Y'all know what the kids did with Elvis, right? The little girls, they would come, and they would scream themselves hoarse. You've seen the, all, all the old videos of this. You know what I'm talking about? I don't dare talk about modern pop stuff. We'll just go back to the source of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> These Elvis concerts, the kids would lose their minds. And, they, and, and it was, it's kind of a mass hysteria kind of thing. It's a group psychology kind of phenomenon, but imagine you're one of those little teenagers that has joined everybody else in worshiping at the, at the trough of, of the great Elvis. Uh-huh. And you see him, and he stops the music. He says, hey, everybody. Hey, hey, settle down. And they're used to him being crazy on stage, so he actually has to say, hey, no, I mean it. Shut down for a second. You. And you're that kid that the king points out, you. And then everybody says, me, me, me. And he's like, no, 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 you. And finally, you understand he's pointing at you. 
and you're pointing at yourself, and there's agreement. We're communicating. Imagine that fairy tale experience of insanity. Come up here. And so the little girl, 12, 15, whatever, gets up and comes up on stage. And he says, I, I, uh, I don't want to sing anymore tonight. I just want to talk to you. What's your name, little girl? My name's Becky. Well, Becky, you're the only person here that I know, but I know you. Imagine how Becky feels at that moment. She thinks that she's the most important person, in the, well, the second most important person in the world. Because the most important person is, of course, Elvis, the king. And he knows her. And I hope you understand that this is an idiotic thing to think. That another human being, broken, sinful, needing of a savior, selfish to the extreme, like all of us are capable of being, absolute power corrupting, absolutely, that we would be impressed for a very instant, for a a scintilla of an instant, that this person knows me or cares about me. You know what, Becky? I'm going to shut down the show. Good night, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Me and Becky, we're going to go have a talk. Becky, do you like ice cream? And then she's going to have ice cream with Elvis. Now, in the world, that would be, in that day, the most wonderful experience any of those poor little insane children could ever imagine happening to them because the greatest person knew them and thought of them. And it's idiotic that we would think this way because, again, Elvis is limited and broken and sinful and all the things that he's just a human. But Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. The actual king knows you and has had you in his thinking from eternity past. We don't think about it. We don't think about our so great salvation simply because we can't see him. He's not sitting there talking to us. He's not holding a, a, a concert. Well, he's not known for, Jesus isn't known for his singing in the gospel, so it would have been a speech he would have given. Let me ask you this about the discipleship stuff in the gospels. When he's calling the disciples and one guy, Lord, can I, uh, can I go bury my father? Go let the dead bury the dead. All these people have these reasons why they can't follow Jesus right now. Well, Jesus, I had some business that they intend to attend to. Okay. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe and the flesh of mankind, preparing to die for your sins, rise from the dead, and eventually rule on planet Earth over all the nations? Can you imagine this one looking you physically, bodily, after the flesh in the eye and saying, would you like to come with me? Can you imagine having a reason why not? The reason people said no to him is they didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand and they didn't believe and they they weren't ready and they hadn't believed Moses so they didn't believe him and so they didn't have a clue. But you who have Christ, do you see what I'm saying? You have him. And the differential is that you can't see him and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we don't know him after the flesh like we used to. Now we know him according to the word because we're not... We're not next to him like we will be. It's not like it was in the Gospels, but it will be that way. But until then, we know him this way. And that's his design. He wants us to serve him under these difficult conditions. That's why Paul then says, echoing what he already did in verse 4, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. If you have Christ, you have the wealth. You just don't know what it is. You're a baby with a billion-dollar check. You don't know what you have. We don't realize that we're heirs with Christ who is the heir of all things, and we're worried about the stuff, and we're worried about all the things that are not the things of God that we'll only see through the eyes of faith as we avail ourselves of God's Word. Since Christ is the wealth that we have, he's he's the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, we don't need to be distracted. I I don't know how this system of thinking or reasoning or philosophy is going to take me away from him, but I know that I have Christ, and that's my brand. That's where I belong. This is my identity. So nothing's going to challenge that. For in him, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. That's your new creation. 
He is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The most difficult verse, of course, verse 11, spiritual circumcision. But you're, you've been identified with Jesus Christ and unified with him, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is true of you inasmuch as you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior. If I told you that before you believed in Christ, you wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't have any spiritual access to these spiritual truths. But having believed in Christ, received the Holy Spirit, opening yourself to the things of God, now you need to know these things. This is who I am. And so God is holding up a mirror to you. You don't realize you're in white raiment. You don't realize that you are the heir of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, a fellow heir with Christ, in other words. You don't realize who you are until you look at this and the Word of God tells you, as James says, who you are. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. That's your new birth. That's what happened the very moment you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And we're a million miles from living our lives for fun if we're serious about what's being said here. We're living our lives for Christ with joy inexpressible and full of glory in our so great salvation. And we're finding in the service that he's given us something much greater than fun. There's fun, but it's better than fun. He forgave us all our transgressions in verse 13, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. How do you apply this truth? If I have Christ, I have forgiveness of my sins forever. If I have Christ, then there is no thing, nothing that God's enemy can bring and charge against me that God can't say, I nailed that to the cross in my son. He paid for it already. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what do you do with that? You trust him. You take it on faith that you have the life. And then you say, since I have this life, what shall I do? What, how then shall I live? What is my life for? We don't make the mistake of the world and say, well, I've adopted this perspective from God's infinite word, so now I'm just going to disregard the rest of it and see what the world has to offer in fun. And my prayer for you is that eventually you get sick of cotton candy. My prayer for you is eventually you look in the mirror and you see the donkey is starting to come up. And you say, well, this wasn't such a great idea. My prayer for you is that you'll say, what else does God have to say? Because nothing is satisfying me. I'm, I, I've had my Ecclesiastes moments. I hope you all have. If you haven't, I hope you do. Where you've tried the various ways to satisfy yourself and you found them wanting. If you're young people, my prayer for you is that you don't waste your life in the pursuit to, to recapitulate what Solomon has already said. There is nothing under the sun that's going to satisfy you like your walk with God, your creator who made the sun. So why should I live differently from the world? Because I'm different. Because he made me new. Because he forgave me of all my sins the moment I trusted in Christ as my savior. And because the immediate and obvious consequence of God doing something like that for me is gratitude. So take your temperature. Go with Paul. Read, read Colossians 2. See what he's saying. Are we overflowing with gratitude or is there, is there something not quite well there? If I'm not grateful. Why not? Well, I'm having problems. Doesn't God know this situation in my life is tough? He does. There's plenty of scripture about this. It, it, it's all part of the equation. It's all part of the baked in. He knows what you're going through and he knew what his son was going to go through and he demonstrated what he was going to go through when he sent Abraham to sacrifice his son in Genesis 22. God knows all of that. 
So what, what, where's the joy? The joy is in the focus on Jesus Christ. It's on the recognition of his love for me. And it's, it's on the, the belief, the conviction, and what he said about me, that he got me new. He made me new for his eternal purposes. If you believe that, then it's time to ask God to let these things sink in so you think of yourself this way. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you just start thinking of yourself as one who is in Christ, who's walking with God's perfect righteousness imputed to your account. You start seeing yourself as someone, as we said earlier, that is empowered by the Spirit of God to love at an infinitely high level. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. And you need to stop thinking of the commands of God on your life, like love one another, make disciples, as burdens that, oh, this life is a hard life, or the word, it's hard to listen and concentrate and study. Stop looking at the challenges of this life as difficulties for you to overcome and start looking, for them at, looking at them as privileges for you to embrace. If I go long today, air conditioners are pumping, right? We're, we're good. We could, we could go a whole another four or five minutes. If I was to go long today, would I have taken five minutes from your afternoon or would I have given you five more minutes of God's word? See, that's that pessimism, optimism thing. Is God exacting of me that I self-sacrificially love other people? Or is he saying, you get to join me in the executive carrying out of my works that I've started through my son as part of the body of Christ? What an awesome spiritual life God has given us. What an awesome thing that he put the Holy Spirit in our hearts to abide forever. What a tragic waste if, like James chapter 1, we look into the mirror of the word and then walk out those doors and forget what it said about us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We close this morning with the words of life for anyone who may be in the hearing my voice without eternal life. It is love for you that prompts us to say it. But that love for you isn't the love of the world. It isn't the kind of affection that is dependent on your response. Truly, it isn't. It isn't the kind of love that uh, affirms whatever you feel because that isn't necessarily good for you. The kind of love we're talking about desires the very best and highest for you. And that is eternal life, a relationship with your creator for which you've been designed. We bow our head, we close our eyes because we believe this is between you and God. But it is something that you have to deal with. And the Apostle Paul said, how will they know unless someone sends a preacher? So here we go. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That is the only answer necessary to the ultimate question, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our Father, we love you and we thank you for the eternal life that you've offered us through your Son. Thank you for the way we've been able to see today that the gospel began with simple childlike faith. But as we live this life, we continue in faith. We continue to take in your word, to learn of you, to think about what you have for us, and not only to learn it, but to do it. Father, we need your spirit's power at every phase, in this intake phase, and then in motivating us to walk by it, and then the actual execution of it, not only choosing to walk by it, but then the actual conducting ourselves. We need your spirit's work in us at every step, and we know that, so we depend on you to provide that power through him. Father, glorify yourself in our life, in our choices, in our interactions. Those that are visiting today, Father, strengthen them to know you better, to walk with you every day of their lives. Father, teach us to meditate on your word and so be enriched and matured by it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.